Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The county and state crack down as COVID cases ramp up. There's been a little bit of a rub there in terms of actually doing the citations and fines. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Now there are two promising COVID vaccines headed for FDA approval. It's going to take probably at least six months to a full year to get enough people vaccinated that we might be able to see, you know, really have come out of this dark tunnel of infection. We'll meet the apparent winner of the District 1 San Diego Supervisors race, Nora Vargas, and this Thanksgiving might be just the time to pick up a cooked dinner from a restaurant that really needs your business. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego's coronavirus surge continues with 833 new cases reported on Monday. The state as a whole is facing such an unprecedented increase in cases that Governor Newsom has put a halt on reopenings and tightened the rules concerning countywide tier restrictions. He's also considering a statewide curfew, a tactic that has had success in other nations and regions of the country. But not everyone is on board with business closures and tighter restrictions to fight the virus, and San Diego is starting to crack down. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Paul Sisson. And Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, you reported that just yesterday the county issued cease and desist orders against 17 businesses, which the county says are not in compliance with COVID restrictions. What kinds of businesses got those orders? Uh, It seems to break down into two main categories. You have restaurants, bars, and grills, uh, as well as uh, athletic clubs and gyms. Uh, One case, uh, a large chain fit athletic club 
which is five different uh, cease and desist orders for five different locations that they operate. Uh, and then there is one church, uh, Awakened Church in Carlsbad. What legal weight does a cease and desist order have? I, I believe it's considered a misdemeanor, uh, punishable uh, by uh, a fine of up to $1,000 per violation. There's been a little bit of a rub there in terms of actually doing the citations and fines. That requires, apparently, the participation of local law enforcement, and they've been a little more reluctant to move forward with uh, anything more than what they call education for folks who are violating the public health orders. So the county can issue a cease and desist order, but it's up to local law enforcement agencies to enforce it? Yeah, that seems to be the crux of it. It's, it's still a little murky in terms of exactly what the mechanics are there, in terms of you know who needs to do an investigation and document uh, whatever wrongdoing there was. Uh, the county also has the ability to go one level higher and issue a closure order where they can just force a business to shut down immediately. Uh, and they did that uh, earlier in the year uh, with the El Prez restaurant uh, in Pacific Beach that had a viral video uh, spread across the nation of uh, unmasked patrons uh, partying in the restaurant back, back during the summer. What are law enforcement agencies in the county telling you about their willingness to issue fines and citations in regard to businesses and, and people who don't comply? You know, the the folks we've spoken to at various different law enforcement agencies uh, seem to feel that education is the more appropriate way to move forward with these issues uh, as as they're reported by the public, uh, you know, for enforcement. Uh, There just doesn't seem to be a lot of desire to take it much further than that. Uh, You know, the sense is that these businesses are all hurting and, and in, a, in a normal environment without a pandemic present, that they would be engaging in law-abiding behavior. So, so I think that, you know, there's just some reluctance from, from a workforce that has made their entire careers going after uh, lawbreakers uh, in a kind of a normal environment. So there, there is some pushback there for sure. And meanwhile, a number of San Diego businesses are challenging the COVID restrictions in court. What's their argument? Uh, their their argument is that you know a these uh, regulations infringe on on certain constitutional rights and b uh, that the county has been um, hit and miss in terms of enforcement. This started with uh, several adult clubs here in town that pursued a similar uh, request for an injunction uh, a few weeks ago and and managed to uh, to get a ruling last week. And so the idea there is just that uh, you know you need to be completely consistent. They they pointed to some other businesses that were allowed to have live entertainment throughout the city. Uh, and so um, so there's kind of a two-pronged argument. Infringement on basic rights, uh, also uh, un- uneven, inconsistent uh, enforcement. And so the adult clubs were successful in their case? Uh, so far. They have another hearing uh, scheduled for November 30th, uh, but they were indeed uh, successful in getting a temporary injunction to stop the county from enforcing its cease and desist orders that were issued against those clubs earlier when they uh, when they were found to have had uh, live entertainment going on inside. What about the status of the lawsuits these other businesses have against the COVID restrictions? That, uh, that hearing was to take place uh, today on Tuesday, uh, but yesterday it was uh, moved to Thursday with no explanation. Uh, so we should, we should hear a preliminary hearing uh, on Thursday to decide whether those plaintiffs will uh, be victorious and, and be somewhat exempt from cease and desist orders uh, 
going forward. Tell us more about the stricter measures the governor has put into place to try to stop the surge. Yesterday, the governor came out and uh, announced that additional counties throughout the state would uh, would fall a tier immediately, uh, some of which uh, had only had one week of um, case rates uh, that were outside of the thresholds for the current tiers that they were in. So now we have suddenly 41 counties uh, across the state in the purple tier, which is where we, as uh, as a county, where San Diego landed last week. And so, uh, you know, that is kind of the main change that the governor made yesterday, just moving very quickly to drop people down to, uh, many of them, the lowest purple tier, which requires businesses, uh, restaurants, uh, houses of worship, you know, movie theaters and such to do only outdoor operations. And then in addition to that, you know, the, the governor has talked about things like curfews. You know, he hasn't really said much specific uh, about exactly uh, how a curfew might work in California, but he said he's uh, studying up on it as we speak. Uh, And then uh, additionally, uh, they're also talking about how uh, they're still trying to come up with some good guidance statewide for there to be athletic competitions, especially youth athletic competitions. Uh, The governor said yesterday that he had literally signed some guidance finally that everybody's been waiting for, and then that was put on hold by the surge of cases that we've seen across the state. Uh, So that really is a a major setback for folks who are currently uh, traveling out of state for athletic competitions to states like Arizona, where more direct competition is allowed. And are these tighter measures being adopted because the state believes COVID case numbers are going to get even worse? Yeah, they uh, they talked a lot yesterday about what they're seeing in the, you know in the trajectory of the numbers. Uh, you know, our case rate in in California is still, I believe, under five percent, and it's uh, it's much higher in, in other states, uh, many in the Midwest, that have seen uh, you know significantly larger percentages of uh, tests coming back positive. I was looking at the numbers on the uh, the South Dakota public health website last night, and, the, and their positivity rate is uh, for tests is over twenty percent. Uh, so we're we're nowhere there yet, and and the state's uh, whole rationale is, you know, we don't want to get there. Yes, uh, when you put our positivity rate up against others, it's still low, but we're seeing a rate of increase that's, uh, you know, something like 51% increase in, in a single week in early November. So there, the idea is, you know, the, the, the slope of that line is steeper than it was uh, in the spring and in early summer when we saw our last big spike. So we know that uh, that tells us that we need to get more strict right now to avoid that peak that we know is coming. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you. Thank you. We'll have more about the challenges facing young athletes because of COVID later in our show. This summer, hundreds of San Diegans were among the test subjects for the COVID vaccine developed by Moderna. Now, their efforts have paid off, with the company reporting the vaccine is more than 94% effective against the coronavirus. This news comes a week after drug company Pfizer announced a 90% effective vaccine, and both successful trials come not a moment too soon. California and the rest of the country are experiencing the biggest surge yet of the virus. Officials say the increase in cases will probably get worse in the weeks to come. Joining me is KPBS science and technology reporter Shalina Chatlani. Shalina, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. Tell us about the differences and the similarities between the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. 
Sure. Um, so let me give you a little bit of background. These are novel types of vaccines that haven't been done before at this level. There have been some preclinical and clinical trials to show their promise. These are mRNA vaccines. So we have vaccines that are pretty common that we know about. One, you know, where you get a little bit of the germ or virus that's put into your body to initiate an immune response. Um, it's a, just enough to get that immune response, but not to make you sick. And then there's another type that uses a specific part of the virus, like proteins or sugars. They go into the body. They're not as strong, but they require booster shots. So those are a couple, right? But mRNA vaccines use genetic information, not the actual infectious material like the other vaccines. Once this type of code is injected, it asks cells to build whatever antibodies or immune response is needed to fight off the disease. That's why it's called messenger RNA. So the pro is that these are very safe because they don't have the actual virus. So Pfizer and Moderna have made both of these, but the main difference between the two is that Pfizer's version has to be kept at extremely cold temperatures. So we're talking colder than winters in Antarctica, minus 70 degrees Celsius. But Moderna's has to be kept at around minus 20 degrees Celsius, just like your common refrigerator. These are the key differences that could impact how these vaccines are distributed because Pfizer's could require some special technologies to keep it um, at the proper temperature for transportation. The Moderna vaccine reported great success at the end of its phase three clinical trial. What has to happen now for it to get FDA approval? So I believe that Moderna is already taking the steps to present the vaccine and its data to the FDA to get approval. And, you know, the experts that I talked to say that at least for emergency use authorization, which is a type of fast tracked approval made for, you know, serious circumstances like frontline workers, hospital workers, nurses, um, essential workers, might need to get access to a vaccine more quickly than other people in the population. That's what emergency use authorization is for. It's a fast-tracked approval. So that, I think, could happen, you know, in the coming weeks to a couple months. Um, but for the vaccine in total to be distributed, it probably has to go through a few more safety protocol steps with the FDA and more revision of the data. Dr. Tal Zaks, which is the chief medical officer from, for Moderna, had told CNN earlier this week that he does think that he could start to get millions of doses out by the end of the year. Uh, by the end of this year, we said that in the United States, we expect to have 20 million doses. And remember, we have, you know, 300 million plus people in the United States. So it's going to take longer. And that's the point that San Diego immunologist Carl Ware made. I spoke to him um, this week. He's from the Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute. It's going to take probably at least six months to a full year to get enough people vaccinated that we might be able to see, you know, really have come out of this dark tunnel of infection. Do we know how long an immunity from either of these vaccines might last? In my conversation with Ware, that was sort of the unknown point, right? So we are still sort of new at these vaccines and with coronavirus in general. It's a, you know, the virus can mutate and so it might require another version of the vaccine, but it's, it's unknown, right? With influenza, we have to get different shots every year because there could be a different strain. But with coronavirus, it's so new um, that it's still unclear to scientists how long immunity will last with 
either of these particular vaccines, you know, it's too early to tell until a vast majority of the population is vaccinated. And in addition to these two vaccines, are there other vaccines in the pipeline? There are other vaccines that are going that have hit phase three clinical trial. Um, one that we hear about a lot is the one from AstraZeneca, the University of Oxford. Um, they were in phase three, phase three clinical trials, but they did experience a safety concern with one of their participants. They got past that. They're you know continuing their their data work, um, but they're one of a handful of companies that are working on the vaccine right now that have made it to this stage of data collection. Um, so there are other vaccines in the pipeline. Okay, I've been speaking with KPBS science and technology reporter Shalina Chatlani. Shalina, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. It was a case that commanded headlines for months back in 2002. Jahi Turner, two years old, went missing. His stepfather said they were at a neighborhood park. He left the child for a minute to go get him something to drink, and Jahi vanished. The boy's mother learned the news while serving on a Navy ship. The case was never solved. Joining me is Dana Littlefield, an editor with the San Diego Union-Tribune, whose interview with Jahi's mother, Tamika Jones, was published over the weekend. Dana, welcome back to Midday Edition. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, this is a tragic and complicated case, but start with when the news broke. Uh, what was the stepfather's story and the mother's reaction? How did the police and the public react to this missing child? Th this happened when there had been another high-profile missing child case just a couple months earlier, back in 2002. That was the case involving Danielle, Danielle Van Dam, who was seven years old and uh, was kidnapped from her bedroom in Sabre Springs, in another part of San Diego. And so the public, I believe, was already, you know, edgy about these types of cases. Now you have a two-year-old who has gone missing. And people mobilized very quickly to get out and search for him. The search was massive through the neighborhood, through the park where the stepfather said um, the boy had been playing before he, you know, turned his back and walked to go get something for the child to drink. Nobody came up with anything. Jahi was just gone. And what did the police conclude about what happened back at that time? Very soon, they began to suspect the stepfather, Tyra Jones. Jahi's mother, Tamika Jones, had been deployed that week. So this was in April 2002. The boy was with his stepfather. Um, 
it was Thursday of that week that Tamika got the call from her then husband saying that her child was missing. And so they brought her back. And of course she was unimaginably distraught, but she stuck by her husband at the time and she believed his story, but the police did not. His, his story was that he had walked away uh, to get the child a drink and then came back to the area and Jahi was gone. Um, they never arrested him. They never made an arrest. And actually, it wasn't until 14 years later that they actually did arrest him and he was later charged with murder. Right. It was a cold case all that time. And I wanted to do a, a step back and ask you, uh, why did you do the story now, 18 years later with Tamika Jones? Uh, does it have special meaning for you? Well, I, I did the story because she was ready. She was ready to talk. She was ready to tell her story. Back in 2002, she and Tyree had given a couple of interviews, very brief interviews or media appearance, appearances, uh, however you want to describe them, um, mostly at the urging of police. Um, and so all over that time, you know, during, uh, you know, this time where she and her then husband, they had another child, she went back to the East Coast. Um, she was haunted, as you can well imagine, by these questions about what happened to her boy. And also during that time, she felt like she, she didn't get to get her story out there, her point of view, and explain what she had gone through and what her true feelings were. And a year after the trial ended in a deadlock, she felt like that was the time to speak. That brings us up to, to this time. Now, you also interviewed Maura Mackensis Parga, the detective assigned to the case. She gave you some insight into how these cases can evolve over time. It was a cold case for a long time. Tell us about uh, what you learned from her. Yes, Mo Parga was a San Diego Police Department detective. Uh, she's retired now. And she was involved in the Danielle Van Dam case that uh, was in February of that year, 2002. And then she went right into the investigation uh, in the Jahi Turner case, which, which was just a few months later. Her main tasks, or one of her main tasks in the beginning was to um, make contact with the mother, with Tamika Jones, to question her, to find out you know, what was going on, what led up to this disappearance. Um, but the way Moparga described it to me in our interview is that, you know, understandably, Tamika just really wasn't ready to open up. She was upset. She was angry. She was very angry. And from Tamika's perspective, it looked like they, the investigators, were spending all of this time with her and not looking for her boy. Later on, Moparga made contact with Tamika again after um, Tamika had separated and eventually divorced her husband. And Mo Parker was in instrumental in taking the, the case off the shelf, so to speak. And so she was the one who kind of gathered the troops again to start looking into this case and start talking about it and take it to trial. And Tyree Jones was arrested in 2016, prosecuted in the next couple of years after that. Why do you think the verdict uh, went down the way it did? It was a difficult case. As you say, uh, there was no uh, victim's body here. So you had a case where there was no body. There wasn't a, a huge amount of, you know, 
evidence that was different in 2014 or 2016 than there was in 2002. Jurors heard all of that evidence and Tyra Jones testified in his own trial and he he remained steadfast in that he did not harm this boy. In the end, the jurors deadlocked. were not able to make a unanimous decision on the charge he was facing, which was murder. Now, what about Tamika Jones? What's she doing now? How has she come to grips with what happened to her little boy? She's a, a different person now in that, you know, she has gone back to school. She has you know, obtained her her college degree. She works at the University of Maryland. What was interesting to me about that was the way she framed it was that she was trying to make herself stronger, better, uh, better positioned in life so that she could be ready when her son came home. And for my younger son that I um, love and care for and who is is my reason for standing up straight at this point. That's that's somewhat how she put it. Um, so she clung to this belief for all of these years that Jahi was going to come home. She says now that um, you know she realizes that that's probably not the case. That that's highly unlikely. Um, she understands. She heard all the evidence in trial. She understands that you know Jahi is probably deceased, um, but she's still a mother. And there's just part of her that just won't let that idea, that that tiny idea that maybe, just maybe he's somewhere out there. And we should note Jahi Turner would have been 20 years old now. I've been speaking with Dana Littlefield of the San Diego Union Tribune. Dana, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Well, it looks to be quite a change after being represented by the same Republican supervisor for 25 years. Residents of San Diego County's District 1 will soon have a new representative who is a Democrat. District 1 is the southwest portion of the county and includes the county's second largest city, Chula Vista. Nora Vargas is president of the Southwest College Governing Board and worked as an executive with Planned Parenthood for 20 years. And Nora Vargas joins me now. Welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. Well, first off, you're ahead by more than 30,000 votes, yet not all votes have been counted, and your opponent, fellow Democrat Ben Hueso, has not yet conceded, although uh, incumbent Greg Cox called and congratulated you. What's the status of the District 1 race in your eyes right now? Uh, well, you know, it looks really, really good. Uh, after two years of really hard work, um, I think that uh, we, uh, the voters, have made a decision. Uh, the Actual election will not be final until December 2nd, but the probability of, of the changes, of any other changes happening are very slim to none. So I think we're, we're in a really good place um, and we are now in the transition process. Now, you'll be the first Latina on the Board of Supervisors. How do you feel about that? You know, I am extremely humbled and um, honored to have had the trust of uh, the residents of District 1 and for all their support. I have no doubt that I'm going to continue to fight for them. You know, representation matters. And I really do stand on the shoulders of so many uh, community activists and leaders in our community and, uh, the, you know, people that came before me that really created this opportunity so someone like me could actually be a candidate and win in this role. Your district has been one of the areas hardest hit by coronavirus in our county. Uh, what are your goals when it comes to addressing this pandemic and recovering from the economic impacts? 
So, yeah, so actually, you know, throughout the um, campaign after the primary when COVID hit, um, you know, I really made sure that we hit the ground running as a campaign and we, we used all of our resources to help our community. And so I heard firsthand uh, from our community what their needs were. And so mitigating the impacts of COVID is going to be absolutely a priority for me. As a matter of fact, this week I'm meeting with county health experts um, on COVID to make sure that we that I have all the information that I need as we're as we're uh, entering this new phase. But I think the, the county has a responsibility to invest in our communities. Uh, they have done some testing and there's some contract tracing, but I think there's more work to be done. Testing has to continue to be a priority. I think that uh, we have to figure out a way to partner up with small businesses so that we can make sure that they have the relief that they have they can they can get. I'm nervous about the different holidays that are coming up. I think it's very natural for people to want to come together, but I think that we need to make sure we continue to communicate with folks that it is in our best interest for us to make sure that we're maintaining social distances, that we are continuing to use our masks, that we are taking care of each other. And, you know, healthcare access is a huge issue in District 1. The disparities uh, have been real for decades. And so working together with community clinics and uh, with our community to find out how we better uh, address some of this is going to be one of my priorities. Outside of coronavirus, what are your priorities as one of five members of the County Board of Supervisors? Well, I mean, I, I think that mitigating the impacts of the coronavirus is really a, a big priority for me. And, and although there's a lot of issues that we need to address, until we have uh, healthy communities, it's going to be tough to move forward. But I think um, parallel to that, I think it's going to be the workaround health disparities, addressing health disparities and the inequities. So really making sure that we have the data that we need to be able to move forward is going to be a priority. The Tijuana River Valley sewage issue is a big one for us in our community. We want to make sure that the county addresses this immediately. So working with my colleagues, um, I think it's going to be critical uh, that the, we declare this a public health care crisis. Uh, this is really an important issue for all of us, and it has been impacting the community for years. Access to, to child care is another big issue for, for us in our communities as we're trying to, we talk about economic prosperity and how do we recover. I think the county of San Diego really needs to invest in strong economic recovery plan that includes child care infrastructure. And so working with my colleagues on that issue is going to be important to me. In addition, you know, all the work that I will be doing really is going to have this component of our families first. And how do we make sure that the communities of District 1 have what they need to be able to, you know, basic needs that they need to be able uh, to continue to move forward. And, and so I will be releasing my Families First initiative um, in the next couple of weeks to make sure that, that we are advancing accordingly. For the first time in memory, Democrats will have a majority on the county board. How do you think the change from Republican to Democratic control will affect the direction of the board? Well, I think that, you know, you have between Supervisor like Tara Lawson-Lemer and Supervisor Nathan Fletcher, I think that we our vision for the county is really one where we are ensuring that our families come first, that working families have what they need, that we our environment is a priority, right? Uh, climate action. We don't have a climate action plan. I think those are the issues that we're going to be addressing head on uh, as we move forward. Uh, I want to make sure that our county employees understand that we have a very different vision of where we're going and what we want to do. And so I think that there's a lot of work that we're going to be do doing together. And really, I think what's important is that our values are very aligned, I would say, uh, in that we want to make sure that our communities have what they need to make sure that they're thriving in the county of San Diego. Uh, you've given your cell number out and encouraged residents to call or text. What kinds of messages have you gotten? 
Well, you know, a lot of messages of hope, a lot of messages, um, you know, I, I, English is my second language, so I speak Spanish. And so I get a lot of, of conversations with a lot of our community members, older gentlemen and ladies uh, from our community, seniors uh, who are checking in with me and letting me know that they have concerns, um, some of the issues around homelessness, some of the issues, uh, you know, in our unsheltered communities, um, they have questions. They just really want to make sure that they have a representative that's responsive and that's going to be there for them. And so I'm committed to doing that work. I, It's what I've done as an elected official at the community college. And so I really do uh, pride myself in being uh, transparent and accountable to my constituents and someone uh, that people could reach out to. You know, I, I always say I don't have the answers all the answers, but I what I do have is, you know, a willingness to listen to folks um, to address and how we, uh, you know, address some of these issues. So I'm excited about it. And, and people are so respectful of just not, you know, bombarding me with stuff. And they've been able to follow up. And, and it's been great. It's been great. I've been speaking with Nora Vargas, who looks to be the new supervisor for District 1 in San Diego County. Thanks very much and congratulations. Thank you so much. COVID-19 restrictions have kept youth athletes from being able to get out and play. For many graduating high school athletes, this means college and scholarship opportunities have vanished. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne talks to an Oceanside soccer team about what they're doing to get those opportunities back. I'm not sure how this is going to end up, but they've really lost a lot of valuable time. Frank Zimmerman, coach for the Oceanside Breakers, was unable to lead his boys' team of high school juniors to defend their 2019 State Cup championship due to COVID-19 restrictions. For these 16- to 17-year-old boys, this is a pivotal moment where college teams begin to scout players. Without the ability to compete, players like Javier Camargo can't get those opportunities. We're really looking forward to National Cup. We're defending champs back in 2019 and you know um, we could have been exposed to a lot of colleges now that we're juniors and pretty bummed out. California's COVID-19 guidelines allow conditioning, practice and training but no competition outside a team's defined practice cohort. Playing locally is not allowed. Even playing with one of our breakers teams against another Oceanside breakers team is not yet allowed. They have to stay in their cohort. However, it is allowed in other neighboring states. Sporting events have been held in Arizona, Nevada, and Utah. Zimmerman plans on making the trip to Arizona with his team Thanksgiving weekend, even though California has issued a travel advisory telling people to quarantine if they go out of state and return. Christian McElroy, an Oceanside breaker, is looking forward to playing in front of college coaches when his team travels to the Arizona tournament. We just want to play, and we're not allowed to play in California, so... Whenever you get a chance, it'll be good. With the restrictions on competitive play, sports clubs throughout San Diego are struggling to keep running. Bob Turner, executive director of Presidio Soccer League, says that impacts some players more than others. The kids with money are going to be able to play. They can afford it, but the underprivileged kids that have been helped and scholarshiped aren't going to have those scholarships. They will not have them. And now, again, the direct effect is to those kids. Coaches Turner and Zimmerman said the lack of competitions in sports also impacts the mental health of players who just want to play. They miss competing with each other against other teams 
And they haven't got to do that since March 13th, before March 13th. Youth sports opens the door to college for many athletes. With no ease of restrictions in sight, players like Javier Camargo will need to work with their coaches to find the opportunities to get them exposed to college and pro recruiters. Uh, I've been playing the sport since I was four, and yeah, it's something I do want to play professionally, hopefully. And I look forward to like getting scouted one day and like, you know, just making my dreams come true. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. This story was produced with support from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. Restaurants are scrambling to figure out how to offer their regular Thanksgiving meals to customers outdoors or at home. In fact, San Diego restaurants who've never offered meals specifically geared to the holidays are trying to promote special takeouts for Thanksgiving. It's all part of an industry trying to use creativity and perseverance to survive multiple coronavirus shutdowns. We'll hear what's available this holiday and catch up with the struggles of local restaurants with Troy Johnson, food writer for San Diego Magazine. And Troy, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. It's, uh, it's an interesting time to be here. It certainly is. Now, you know, we we think of the holidays uh, as home celebrations, but actually many restaurants are traditionally booked solid for Thanksgiving, aren't they? Yeah, restaurants traditionally, the numbers oscillate, but usually it's about 10% of the American public goes out and decides that doing dishes is just no longer a tenable option for happiness and goes and does Thanksgiving dinner at a restaurant. Well, 10% of Americans, that's a huge amount of people that would flood into these restaurants and they'd be booked out for weeks. It's one of their big boom economic contributors for the year, especially heading into a slow season. You know, this is the wintertime is the slowest season for restaurants. Traditionally, the two things that keep them afloat are Thanksgiving um, dinners and then Christmas parties and New Year's Eve parties. Now, those are all going to be out this year. So restaurants are really counting on this Thanksgiving to kind of buttress the coffers. Right. Uh, are restaurants offering special Thanksgiving packages to try to lure people either into the restaurant or to, to buy food from the restaurant? Yeah, everyone has reinvented themselves. Every single restaurateur is now a caterer or an off-premise supplier. You talk about on-premise or off-premise in this industry, right? On-premise is you go to eat at a restaurant and you have drinks and food. Off-premise is catering and to-go orders and that sort of thing. Well, that sector, that to-go sector is doing amazingly well. They're having banner years. What's really struggling are the higher-end restaurants, which depend and are completely built around that dine-in experience with the beautiful chandelier and the nice carpet and the good art and everything else. Those guys just weren't built for this kind of outdoor dining or to go. They are absolutely reinventing their business. I mean, you're seeing, you know, George's, um, which is one of the better restaurants in San Diego. They're doing a three course meal for a really reasonable price, like $75. You have, you know, um, places that really have never even done Thanksgiving dinners offering them to go. They are all turning into Thanksgiving to go centers right now. Can anybody actually get a Thanksgiving meal delivered to their home? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of places doing uh, um, delivery. You can get almost every single one of these places that are doing the packages to go. You can also get through either third party vendor apps or they will they have their own delivery systems. Some of them will deliver themselves. Most of them use a third party app. You can get all these, you know, June Jolie and Campfire up in Carlsbad um, are doing a, you know, like three course meal, like 10 pound smoke roasted bone in beef short ribs and things like that, that you can get delivered to your house or go pick it up curbside delivery. You've given us a, a sort of a feel for this, but I want to ask you specifically, what is the status of San Diego's restaurant industry now that we're in a second shutdown of indoor dining? It's not good. I mean, it's it's one of the most catastrophic things to ever hit our industry. You know, depending on the stats that you look at, Yelp has predicted that 60% of small businesses will close. The in the National Restaurant Association in September said that we've lost about 100,000 restaurants. The year over year decline in, from in 2020 from 2019 is about 35.24%. Now, when you're talking about a, an industry that makes a 6% on average profit margin, meaning every dollar that comes into the restaurant, they get six cents. That 35% dip in revenue is absolutely catastrophic. We've already seen some closures of some San Diego's, you know, better restaurants, more beloved restaurants, the smaller ones. It's the, the I don't want to paint total doom and gloom. The good thing about this is that restaurateurs had that have been able to survive. I've talked with so many that are adapting their businesses. They are streamlining their businesses. High-end places that never even wanted to do to-go are learning how to do to-go. They are rethinking what was really a non-profitable sector, a really hard sector to make a living in. Restaurant profit margins are notoriously bad. And because of this, they've had to become caterers to go and really streamline their businesses and only offer things that really carry well, that are, you know, um, different menu options they've never even served because they were just doing dine-in only. You know, a lot of restaurateurs say this has actually been, you know, as long as they survive, you know, really good for their long-term financial success. So you think that some of these changes are forcing fundamental changes in, in the restaurant industry? For sure. Absolutely. And one thing that I love as somebody who's observed restaurant cultures, I think that it's it's bred in empathy among restaurant diners that we've never seen before. When there is the advent of online reviewing, and I'm not going to name any one company specifically, I'm just saying online review sites became caustic. They became so, you know, vitriolic, really. You, you would see somebody, you know, review a restaurant and it was just a small mom and pop. And they said, oh, we showed up on a Friday night with seven people and they, they wouldn't let us in, but we saw a table in the corner. It's like, you showed up on a Friday night without a reservation. You couldn't get in. And now you're giving this restaurant a one-star review on this website that really drastically affects their business. It had become a culture of bullying small entrepreneurs entrepreneurs and, and mom and pop business owners. And I think now everybody's got that. Everybody is chilled out as a diner. They're not as critical. They don't think their opinion um, or their, their harsh criticism is as valuable anymore. And they realize that these are real human beings who are working on a small profit line, just trying to keep themselves and their people employed. So I think it's just seeing a niceification of our industry, which I think has been long overdue. 
You know, there are an awful lot of San Diegans, you're absolutely right, uh, that would want to support the restaurant industry, but they too are struggling financially and can't be going out or ordering out for food every day. So what would you suggest that we can do to help local restaurants survive? The most important thing is take care of your family, is to pay your bills. We're all hurting it to a varying degree. You know, you have to take care of your own and make sure that you're, you and your family are okay. And if you don't have the money to go out and support these restaurants, that's okay. What you can do, though, is keep the conversation going. If you do a top 10 dishes that you want to go eat again or places that you love, you know, somebody who may be in a better financial position right now to be able to support these restaurants may see that and go, I'm going to go support that restaurant. You know, so I think that if you just continue the you know, this is the place that I'd love to support. This is the reason why I love this restaurant online or just even to your friends, whatever it is, in an email or, you know, you can continue the conversation going because these guys definitely need so much help. The worst thing about this whole COVID and coronavirus is that it affected the places that were really keeping us together. Restaurants, for all their unprofitability, were the one thing that got us off our phones brought us together face to face and kept our community together. And now they, because being together is what's, you know, putting America and the world in danger, they're the ones affected the most. So, I mean, it's, they are far more important to the health of a local community than you can ever imagine. You know, businesses are born in restaurants, you know, uh, families are born in restaurants, relationships are started, friendships are started, whatever it is, you know, and we don't have that anymore. Any of us who've sat at home, you know, and isolated ourselves with maybe a loved one, four loved ones, or you're solo, are now seeing that vast importance of getting together in a group. So anything we can possibly do. One thing I'd like to add about Thanksgiving is I would urge people to, Think non-traditionally. Don't think about Turkey this Thanksgiving. Maybe there's a small ramen shop down the road that, you know, you, you're you going to have a ramen Thanksgiving. And this you'd know it's a small mom and pop could use your help. Don't necessarily just think about turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce. You know, think about international dishes. Think about anything you can do. Find that local place that you think really needs a little boost and if you have the means and if you're able to do it, you know, do a totally non-traditional ramen or sushi or Mexican or Italian or, you know, Eritrean, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. You know, that would really help. I've been speaking with Troy Johnson, food writer for San Diego Magazine. However you celebrate, Troy, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. You, you too as well. For a list of some of the San Diego County restaurants offering dine-in or takeout options for Thanksgiving, go to our website, kpbs.org. And an update in a segment we brought you yesterday about cooking Thanksgiving dinner at home. Our guest said that defrosted cooked turkey bones are poisonous. Now, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, it is true that undercooking a turkey can lead to serious foodborne illness, as can leaving leftovers out too long. But we can find no source stating frozen turkey bones, if cooked properly, are poisonous. So if you have any questions about your food safety for your Thanksgiving dinner, call the USDA Meat and Poultry Hotline at 888 674 68 KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, 
featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu.